though, when you turn on the TV or open a book or, you know, let's say look for memes on the internet. No, nobody (laughs) does that. I'm not just looking directly at you. How easy is it to find someone who looks like you or some people who look like your family? Because I'll tell you, I've never really had that experience. Sarah, and I don't want to speak for you, but I don't think based on our recent text conversations that that has been easy for you either. So when today's guest, who started her own media company called Mixed Asian Media out of her own frustration over not being represented out there, came across my radar, I immediately wanted to know more. And by more, I mean all about her, her company, and her vision of what being mixed Asian is in today's society, in the media, and throughout our own journeys. I totally agree. I could not wait to have this chat with Alex Chester Iwata, as today we get really very real about growing up mixed Asian in the United States, what it means to belong in Asian spaces, and the questions that white people, Asian people, and other monoracial, which is our new favorite word, you've got to listen to this episode (laughs) to learn more about that word. People ask folks like us, biracial and multiracial individuals, things that we really wish you wouldn't ask for example, and so much more. So this episode continues our look into what it means to be biracial and multiracial Asian in this country. And even if it's not you, we guarantee that someone you know is living this experience. This is about all of us. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. I'm thrilled to be kicking off this arc that is so personal to all of us. And I think we'll really dive into some deeper conversations as it relates to all of our listeners as well. Would you please introduce yourself for our audience? Sure. I'm so honored to be here. My name is Alex Chester Iwata, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. Love it. So in case you couldn't guess by that intro, we're kicking off this arc that dives into what it means to be mixed Asian in America. And obviously, well, it's obvious if you see our faces right now, we can post our picture to social media, but it's a topic that is close to every single one of our hearts here in this conversation. And so, Alex, I was wondering if you can tell us what you've grappled with sort of growing up mixed Asian in America when it comes to your personal like story and identity. And I guess for lack of a better way to phrase it, what's your origin story? Oh, I sound like a super villain or something superhero. Maybe, I don't know. One of those things. We're just missing my cat on my lap right now for that. Um, (laughs) So I grew up in Los Angeles and I was a child actor. So my narrative, my origin story was constantly being told that, oh, you're so exotic, but you're just not Asian enough for this. And you're not just, you're not white enough for that. I mean, I had a TV show for Disney And then it was taken away because producers at the last minute decided I was too exotic next to the white lead. So that was my constant, what I was grappling with. And it obviously really played in my head. Like my agents were like, you need to dye your hair black. No, that's too dark. Oh, don't tan too much. And then being going in for Hispanic roles, which I would never, ever do now. But at the time, there was no such thing as like a mixed Asian character. So I was going in for things that weren't me. And then being told I wasn't that. Well, Obviously, I'm not. I can remember I had a pre-screen for Memoirs of a Geisha. So many thoughts and feelings on that film. And the casting director was like, you're not Japanese. You look Siberian. I was like, that's a place. Okay. That's like what I dealt with constantly. Or being asked if I could speak Japanese and then just, oh, just make it up. If you don't speak it, just make it up. 
And it was just so frustrating, constantly being put in this box, and the, which has led me to dye my hair purple and completely rebel. I mean, and just being like, no, I'm going to be my own person now. But that really is what I dealt with, even just in general dating, like navigating that, trying to find partner that wouldn't exoticize me. My ex-dad would call me Oriental all the time. And it was so frustrating. And he never stood up for me on that. So just navigating all those things that I'm sure many of us have to, had to do has been really hard, which this all led me to create Mixed Asian Media, which is my platform, my community's platform for Mixed Asian Pacific Islanders, just out of pure frustration of not seeing representation in mainstream media. Okay, so, so many, well, you can't see this, right, because it's a podcast, but Sarah and I, like, throughout the whole thing, we're, like, nodding our heads off, like those bobbleheads, right? Like, yes, Sarah knows how I feel about the word exotic, especially, I cannot roll my eyes further back in my head every time I hear the word exotic applied to. Well, and I do wonder, the two of you are West Coasters, and you were called exotic. I am an East Coaster. I have a different bone structure than the two of you do, so I don't know if it's due to that or an East Coast thing. I was just instantly lumped into the Hispanic bucket or like the, we don't know what to do with you bucket. So what you said really resonated with me too, Alex. So I'm just curious how that shows up different in different places in this country. I mean, definitely because there's a huge Mexican population, I would say in Southern California, people immediately assumed I was Latinx just because, I mean, my cousins are half Japanese, half Mexican. So, but there was never like, oh, you're mixed. It was immediately, or, oh, are you Spanish? Are you Mexican? Never. Oh, are you Asian? Oh, but then it was, oh, you're so exotic. I still get that to this day. I still had to like stop someone from calling me that. I had to explain that's not a compliment at all. And also something that we've grappled with, especially in the entertainment industry, is that I am seen as ambiguous. I have made a living as an ambiguous actor. What the F does that mean? Right? Ambiguous. I am a full human with a story and people can market things to my demographic as mixed Asians are one of the fastest growing populations in the U.S. according to the U.S. census, but nothing is geared towards us. Instead, we're lumped as ambiguous. Again, I hate that word ambiguous for so many reasons, but I want to talk. Okay. So we have like 12 different ways in which we could go next, but I want to talk about a similarity, Alex, that you and I share besides being born in, or besides being from Los Angeles, which we both share, But I want to talk about the fact that we both have Japanese dads, because when I was growing up, and to be clear, it's not like I met a ton of biracial people growing up, but if they were biracial Asian kids, their moms were always the Asian parent. So it was, right, Sarah's raising her hand over there. So it was particularly confusing for people when I showed up as Misasha Suzuki, because in their minds, right, I was 100% Japanese. And then I showed up and they're like, oh, I don't know, Hispanic Eastern European, your name sounds kind of Russian, like maybe Russian, we'll go with that. But and also compounded on that, the fact that my dad was a Japanese immigrant from Tokyo meant that not only did I have a Japanese dad, I had like a Japanese dad. And so there were so many different layers there. But having a Japanese dad really sort of even further separated me as I felt from the other biracial Asian kids. And so how do you think having a Japanese dad in your experience, like made your biracial childhood or identity different than, you know, having an Asian mom, let's say, if at all? Yeah. So, I mean, my mom is Jewish. So I was raised very much as a Jewish woman. Um, My dad is, I'm third generation Japanese American. So my whole family was in the internment camps. And also my grandfather was in the 442 regiment. So no one in my family speaks Japanese. The only time that like the Japanese comes out, I would say, is at weddings and funerals when we have a Buddhist monk. Like that is the only time. 
so my dad very much when he was alive, I felt he moved the world almost as a white person, or at least he tried to be. It really wasn't a towards his till his end of life when he really started to embrace his culture more. He had planned a trip to Japan, but he never made it, sadly. I will actually be the first Iwata to go back in three generations. So I'm really excited. About that. I totally can you hear I'm like <laughs> clapping into the mic. I'm so excited for this experience. And I want to hear how that sits for you after you go, because that is huge. That'll be really interesting to see. Yeah, I'm really excited. I speak no Japanese. And I've been told by like my best friends who are also mixed Japanese, do not even try. You are atrocious at this language and you will get canceled. So <laughs> I'm so sorry, ancestors. I just do not. My tongue does not want to form the vowels and syllables that way. It just doesn't. I do not have a knack for languages, sadly. Yeah. So I was raised very Jewish and without the Japanese culture. I mean, I love Japanese food and I would say that is definitely my gateway to the culture. But I really don't know much else about it because I read Memoirs of a Geisha when I was like 10. That was kind of my first like, oh, Japan. And now I have so many thoughts and feelings about this book and kind of how icky it was that a white man wrote this. So many things. So yeah, my dad definitely moved through life not as a Japanese person. It was very Americanized. And I would say all my cousins are very Americanized too. Everyone is. And then I think they had to be out of survival because of the internment camps. It really did erase our heritage. So I think we could do like three different podcast episodes on that piece too, because that's something that Sarah and I really talk about as well and have talked about on the podcast. What was that incarceration experience, right, for the Japanese American community? And what was that erasure of culture like? And also proximity to whiteness. And what does that mean, right? And so I want to put a pin in that because we have to have you come back and talk about that because we've got so many other things. Yeah, I would love to. To talk about. And I want to go back to you talking about, you know, being a child actor and sort of being, you know, pigeonholed into roles that either weren't you know, racially yours or being told that you weren't actually Japanese or, you know, you weren't whatever, insert the blank enough, right? And so that led you to start Mixed Asian Media. But part of along that way meant that you had to find your voice, right, around what it means to be Mixed Asian and what that means for you and then what that means for sort of the community as a whole. And Sarah and I have talked about this a lot on the podcast, like maybe too much in some people's opinion, but she and I have very much differed in how we saw ourselves and when we found our voice around being mixed Asian. And so I'm wondering for you, was this something that because of those experiences early that you always had or always knew, or did this come through experience or specific events even, or, you know, what people were telling you? I would say for me, the no's I kept getting in the casting room were really what has informed how I saw myself. Therapy has really helped me figure out who I am today, but it's taken me a long time because I had for a while, I really hated who I was, that I wished so badly that I was either fully Jewish or fully Japanese. So I could at least fit in and feel like I belonged because I really felt that that is what hindered my acting career. Because the feedback never was, oh, you know, she needs to work on X, Y, and Z. It was, oh, we love her but she's just not the right look. We can't do anything with that. I mean, you just can't. I tried to conform as best as I could and I hated it. I always felt so boxed in and it felt icky to me, but I didn't really have the vocabulary to describe why. And it really wasn't until I moved to New York City and started meeting other mixed Asians who's had similar stories to me 
that I finally went, oh, wow, there's a lot of us out there that feel this way. I'm really not alone. And that is what helped shape my identity today, where I really tried to move through my everyday life, just being me, as cheesy and corny as that sounds. It's really hard work to do that and not code switching, because that's something that I did a lot was code switch, especially as a child actor. You know, I'd be in I'd be the only Asian kid doing King and I. Meanwhile, it's all white kids, a white king, you know, a redheaded Lady Tiang. And it, it was just, I thought that was the norm. And I thought that was okay. So I had to really learn to decolonize my mind of what is okay and what is not okay as an actor as well. And I thought it went both ways. That was something that I really thought too. So I can remember doing South Pacific as a little girl and playing the little kid at the time, uh, Nagana, I believe. And I can remember the director being like, don't you want to be Bloody Mary when you grow up? And I was like, no, I want to be Nellie Forbush, which is, for those who don't know, is the white character, white. It, she doesn't have to be, but she usually is. And the director laughed at me. I was eight and he laughed at me. I didn't understand why. And now I was, now I go back. I'm like, oh, it's because that was never going to happen. Maybe today it would, but at that time that would never have happened. So I naively thought that, oh, look, these white actors are playing Asian parts. So that means that myself can play all these white parts. That is definitely not the case. I hope that answers your question. It's fascinating. You left me with some really things that I'm mulling over. One was that it points to this need that Misasha and our listeners know I am huge in the field of positive psychology and this need that human beings have to matter and feel like we belong. And in some ways, in a lot of ways, it sucks that we were never made as biracial people to feel like we belonged either fully in the white culture or the Asian culture. And at the same time, I think for those of us who are up for the challenge, I think it forced us to figure out where we belong and make our own community and really authentically live our voice probably faster than some people who were never pushed to make that decision because they naively felt they belonged in these cultures where there's some really unhealthy dynamics at play anyway. And so maybe that's a good thing. The second thing that it made me think about was this weekend, I actually went to take my younger daughter to see Beetlejuice, which is making its rounds and the tour. And the understudy was playing the role of the daughter and it was a black woman acting. And it was amazing in this otherwise, you know, big cast of white people to see a black woman playing the daughter of a white person. Like I loved it. And I did wonder how much Hamilton has blown open this notion of how people show up in the acting spheres. Because what you said about predominantly white people being able to take on the role of all of the non-white characters, but that wasn't reciprocal. I feel like Hamilton has changed our, at least certainly the kids who've grown up in that realm of like, oh, maybe anybody can play these characters. It's all about imagination anyway, because these are plays and imagination and like we're able to act some of it. So I'm curious where this line of access and representation and making sure that gay actors can play gay roles and like that people are able to play who they are, but also lead to some suspension of disbelief and allow more fluidity in the character assignments. Like how are we going to come out of this period of time? I'm dying to know myself. I've taken a big step back from the theater world, mainly because I wasn't seeing the change I wanted to see. And also to be perfectly frank, they do not pay us enough. They do not pay us enough, even on Broadway. By the time taxes, agent fees, manager fees come out, you still need a second job. And that's disgusting to me. So I've taken a big step back just because ma'am has taken over my life as well. But yes, Hamilton has definitely blown open the door for so many. But the flip side, there's also been like almost a call from like the white people to kind of take back the power, I feel. So I feel like there's this huge power struggle happening specifically within the Broadway community right now where 
there was a like this beautiful renaissance last year of all these BIPOC POC shows happening, but they kept closing very early, like two week runs. And they weren't getting the PR and advertising that was needed. Things had to change within that industry too, and they weren't. So you're trying to advertise this BIPOC show to a traditionally white audience. Well, they're not getting it. You need to change your mindset, change your your plan on how you're going to advertise these shows to different audiences to bring these people into seats. And that wasn't happening. So a lot of shows were closing, like some brilliant shows. And I found that really, really disturbing because if you look at these white institutions that own Broadway, a lot of them voted for Trump, first of all. And second of all, they're run by white people. And like, there's nothing wrong with that. But if things haven't changed at the top, how do we expect things to change really the front facing, the theater, you know, the actors and all of that? Yes, we're seeing more diversity and representation, but there isn't sustainability. Things are closing. So that is the, the stuff that I'm seeing and I'm seeing a pattern of it. It's really frustrating. And I don't know how we fix it. I feel like we're Broadway's in such a little bubble where else Hollywood reaches the masses. So you'll have, you know, Joe Schmo tweeting about something and that tweet, you know, blows up or I don't know, do we call it Twitter, Twitter anymore? Anyway, Xing, Xing, we Xing doesn't quite sound the same. <laughs> the average person isn't going to go and see a Broadway show because you have to pay for flights. You have to pay for a hotel. You have to pay for like a 200 $500 Broadway ticket. And it, so it is still very much a privileged art form in many respects, that does not reach the underserved communities. So I find it very frustrating. I think that there has been a significant change. I've had friends that have had much more opportunities that they never would have seen 10 years ago now, but it's like you get one. There's one role that gets to be a mixed Asian or an Asian and that's it. So we're all fighting for the same thing and there's just not enough opportunities to go around. That's such good insider perspective. And and I thank you for framing the like access that is required to even see a Broadway show. Cause I think that's a really important part of this conversation. And you mentioned mixed Asian media, ma'am, again, and I would love to ask you this question because you mentioned, sure, there's Broadway, there's Hollywood that's even more accessible, but most recently, Misasha and I were texting behind the scenes and I was trying to send her a GIF. I was like looking for one that's like, yay, some great news happened. I think you were taking your hip hop class. I think that's what it was. And I was like, yay, right? And so I ended up sending her a white woman GIF because there was no mixed Asian person gif, right? And there any Asian women gifts are like fairly goofy or demeaning. And so I'm like, okay, I mean, you even joke, I'm like, I'm not sending a black person or a brown person gift, like I'm representing myself. So it's like, this is the most white feed that I'm seeing from you right now. My text, like there's a whole bunch of white women in my text feed from you right now. <laughs> But I had no options, like short of making my own recording and sending it to you, right? There was nothing. And so I realized what we're talking about when we discuss representation goes so much deeper than seeing one mixed race person on that one role on the TV show or on the movie or the Broadway roles. Like, so what are your thoughts at this point on representation in the media? When we're talking about media, there's so much that it encompasses. And, you know, going back to the specific moments and this idea of launching mixed Asian media, can we talk about those two things right now. I mean, I think that we have a long way to go. Like you said, it comes to, it's the little tiny things as far as gifts, as far as advertisements, anything that we consume as consumers. It's just, there's not the representation there. And that's just across the board, whether it's for 
mixed Asians, Asian Americans, the Black community, the Latinx community, the Indigenous population as well. Like it's just across the board. There just isn't the representation there. And I don't know what it'll take. I really don't. I just think it means that we have to keep creating our own stuff. If that means I have to start creating gifts, that means I have to start creating gifts, right? It's really what did lead me segueing into mixed Asian media. I was just so tired. I was so tired. I was looking at, I was actually writing for another blog called Swirl Nation, but it was very specific. It was more geared towards the black and white experience versus like the Asian and other experience or any others for that example. And then I was just looking at, there's like Mochi Mag and there was a few Banana Mag and Slanted and a few other magazines, but nothing specifically geared towards a mixed API voice. So I literally just gathered nine friends together who happened to be actors as well that are mixed Asian. And then was like, hey, I'm not seeing this at all what do you think if we created our own platform? And they all said, that's a great idea. They probably regret that now. Not going to lie. They probably regret that. But that's how we started. And it was just kind of like, oh, this will be fun. We were known as Hoppa Mag back then. And we like every quarter, uh, we would launch a magazine and we'd have like 12 to maybe 18 articles, whether it was about skincare, whether it was about exercise, mental health, or, you know, celebrity interviews or any type of interview. And then it slowly has transformed into mixed Asian media, what you see today, which is a little bit more broad. Um, and I think that's a good thing in a lot of ways. But it really just came out of a, an, I was just so fed up. Prior to that, I was producing mixed cabarets in New York City, featuring all my amazing mixed friends or friends that just didn't feel like they fit the casting box, whether they were trans or that they were curvier or they weren't dark enough or light enough or whatever they had been told by casting. I was creating these cabarets to feature these talented, talented actors and singers. And, and I saw the need for a magazine space similar to that. I love the concept of creating your own space, right? Where there is none, because I think there have been so many times, you know, and I, I want to ask a question about this, where there are spaces that have been created, but it is clear that mixed Asian people do not belong or are made to feel like they do not belong in those spaces. And I want to back up for just a second, because as I was hearing you talk about theater, I come from the ballet world. And that is another world in which, and I'm reading Turning Point right now, which is all about sort of the underlying like privilege and white supremacy that has been the linchpins of ballet. And how do we think about this art form as moving past, you know, what has held it back for so long? Guaranteed, you just blew the minds of a heck of a lot of listeners who are like, I never thought of ballet that way. <laughs> just like, hi, that ballet class, like you may want to think a little deeper because for 13 years, right, that was my life and world. And I did not see people who looked like me for sure. I mean, and I thought that there was no path, right, as a result. And it, this was pre-Misty Copeland, right? This is pre really anyone besides and everyone who came in to dance the sugar plum fairy for example and nutcracker was a very skinny white woman and i was like right that's not me and so i think that there you create a ceiling right there is a, a ceiling that's there that's created in our own minds that is perpetuated by everyone else and so it gives me some level of hope that there are different people out there now and it is i want to say you know that there is more intention around it. But 
Alex, like what you were saying, this is not, you know, like an immediate change. This is not something that is that overnight we're going to see a completely, you know, diverse nutcracker. We're going to remove all the problematic roles from nutcracker or we're going to, you know, because like final bow for Yellowface when that organization came out, I was like, yes, finally. But we still have so far to go. And I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, too. I'll pause there for a second. We do have so far to go because really, to me, representation means like showing all body types, all colors, all of that. And that means like your ingenue isn't just going to be a as far as even the mixed experience isn't just going to be an East Asian white presenting skinny ingenue. It means it's going to be like a short, stocky, you know, quirky ingenue. Like there's so much there. So it's not just oh, he plops in a person who fits, you know, the X, Y, Z, if that makes sense. It's so much more than that, but it's baby steps. So I totally acknowledge that like things are better in the entertainment industry, but until we can see like all spectrums and that means everything, it's moot in my opinion. I agree. I love that point. And thank you for reinforcing that, you know, and I want to take this a little bit broader than entertainment for a second, because one of the things, Alex, that when we first talked, you know, that I really, some of what we talked about that resonated with me is those concept of Asian spaces, right? And, you know, spaces that I personally have run into a lot in like the legal world, in college, let's say, like in any sort of space that's supposed to be for Asians and whether or not mixed Asians are truly welcomed or meant or Sarah's <laughs> like a, crouching towards the mic right now. So I feel like she's got. As you're sharing this, like in Asian spaces, whether or not biracial folks are, are made to feel welcome. And I'm excited for this part of the conversation too, because just to share my experience briefly, I think, so I grew up with the Asian mom. And so usually when it's talking about Asian spaces, it's a lot of Asian women getting together. And I have definitely been made to feel like I don't belong. And it's, I can't pinpoint what that thing is. If it's a group of Japanese people, I am feeling more welcome. If it's a group of a bunch of different Asian folks, oftentimes I don't feel like I'm Asian enough. And I don't know what the thing is. You know, I I have very clear experiences of my time in Japan where I was made to feel that way. But in America, in groups of Asians, I don't know what that is. So I'm only sticking my face towards the mic to add this because it's a very personal question to me. I want to understand what is this thing that makes people feel welcome or not? Oh, gosh, such a loaded question. I have to say, though, I was in a Japanese American space and I felt so unwelcome. It was so awkward. We were there specifically to talk about being mixed Asian. And I ha- we had this older Japanese man ask us if our small feet was because our mothers were Asian. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and my friend Melissa and I just like, we were like, what? We're just shocked. Just like, what? We told this whole breakdown of what we do. And that is your takeaway, sir. It was wild. I definitely, there are definitely, like I said, it's getting better. There are Asian spaces where I do feel more welcome and that I am part of, that I feel that have really been like, you belong. They're making their effort to make sure that I feel welcome, that my mixed community feels welcome. And then there's some where I, I show up and they're kind of like, who the F is this person? And they're like, do you even know what this food is? And it's like, yeah, I do. So I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's part of the white sphere, the, the closest to whiteness, colonization. I don't know exactly what it is. I do tend to think it is part of colonization and the segregation of making people feel othered in order for certain groups to make themselves feel needed and included. 
I too tend to think it's that because it's in the white powers to be benefit for them to stay in power and to separate us, right? Because if we all came together and we're like, no, that's not going to fly anymore. Can you imagine what amazing things we could create and what we could do? But instead, it's easier to separate us and be like, "Mm, you're an other. No, no, no. So I don't know if it's something like that. I also tend to think people in general, we all tend to try to pinpoint each other. Where do you fit in? Are you a cat person? Are you a sci-fi nerd? Like we all try to categorize each other. So I don't know if it's even just on the basic level of that, trying to understand each other, but it tends to come across as sometimes racist. Well, I selfishly ask that. I'm just going to reject this before. I know Sarah's wanting to ask another question for my own very mixed Asian, Black, white children, right? Who have Japanese first names. And I always wonder, like, because it was really difficult at times for me to navigate space to this day, right? It is still difficult for me to navigate spaces and to, you know, not know walking in if this is going to be a welcoming space or if this is going to be one where 30 seconds later, I'm going to wish I had not blocked this time off in my calendar and I wish I could have that all back. But I think about this now more on a level of my boys, right? Because I think like, if this is how I feel walking into spaces like this, how are they going to feel walking into spaces like this where it's, you know, there have been not a ton, but people who have looked at me and said like, okay, you are, well, and and it's typically people who are mixed Asian who are like, oh, you are mixed Asian, but there aren't, I don't think there's been an experience where my boys have walked into a space and someone's like, you know what? You look like you're Japanese, like zero people are going to say that. And so I I think about these spaces a lot. And how do we make these spaces welcoming? And how do we do this as mixed Asians now for the generations that come after us? And so I don't know the answer, right? Absolutely. I think it really does start with some of these organizations having a code of conduct as simple as that on the website. That tends to help being very mindful of who is part of their organization and who is not and looking to see how they can fill those gaps. But that does mean that's more work for these smaller orgs, which they should do. If I'm doing it and I don't have the manpower, then you can do it too. And I think it also is interesting to contemplate what does it mean to belong? Like, what is this that we're talking about? Because, you know, Alex, you mentioned you don't have the language, you don't have the, like, because of the third generation, right? We're talking Initially, it's about looks, but then how much, what is the culture that gets passed down? I'm also the daughter of an immigrant. So to me, it's like the food, the language, like the extreme sexism of like, no, you're the daughter, you can't do this, but your brothers can do this and having to deal with deconstructing it. Like there's a lot of these pressures that I feel from being like, that's my mom's actual Japanese culture. What is the other residual part of culture that gets passed down if it's not language, if it's not food? What are these things that we are deconstructing, that we're feeling and how we show up in the world. And I'll give you an example. They did a study somewhere in Europe where they were trying to figure out among a whole bunch of anti-Semitic folks who had Jewish ancestry. And the folks who went in to study them literally just watched them in their day to day. And they found that the folks who went, instead of vacuuming, you're sweeping. I don't know about you. My mom never taught me how to sweep. I just did my sweeping. You know, you do the cleaning, you sort of absorb certain things. They found that the families who swept the dirt and went into the middle of the room and used a dustpan and then got rid of it in the trash versus the people who swept to the doorway and just shoved it out the door. There were two distinct lens. The people who shoved it out the door were not Jewish because you would, the folks who did collect it in the center were tended to be from Jewish heritage because you'd never throw dirt past the mezuzah at the entryway of your holy space. And so what is it 
that we have absorbed as mixed Asian folks that are these cultural tells that go beyond the initial immigrant experience. And how do you, you know, like you said, like create these intentional spaces with a code of conduct or whatever to avoid people having to ask the question of like, how Asian are you? Do you know the language? Do you like create this false hierarchy of how close you are? Because we all have the bloodline. And so are we just talking about the bloodline? Are we talking about the looks? Are we talking about cultural? Like, what does this mean when we're even having this conversation is something that I'm mulling over. Oh, absolutely. Another thing I would have to say that just to add to this is something I feel we probably all have inherited is trauma. Intergenerational trauma, that, that is the first thing that came to mind when you're asking what have we inherited and whether that is how people behave in families or health issues. I think it all manifests in different ways. I think as far as like what we've inherited and how that shows as well, I think it's something we're all still discovering in so many aspects. I think that we're currently defining what that means to be mixed Asian, the language around that. I think it's an ongoing conversation that needs to continue to have there definitely is a weird hierarchy that is unsaid within the mixed Asian sphere. I know for a fact, like with the Asian mother versus the Asian dad, there's a weird thing there with people. I don't know why. I mean, I do know why, but I don't know why. Like, I think it's ridiculous to be perfectly frank. And also, oh, do you speak the language? No, you don't. Mm. I've had people ask me of like, I feel like I've lost out on not having my language. I'm like, but it's not really my language. I'm third generation American. Like, I have zero connection to Japan. We might have some distant family there, but I'm not going to show up on their doorstep and be like, hello, you know, I'm just not going to do that. So I think it's, it kind of comes back to the white lens again. It all comes back to that, right? It all comes back to that, how we our proximity to whiteness, our proximity to Asianness, and what that looks like for us. And it's, it's, it really is up to us, like people that are leaders within the communities to redefine that. And to say, no, that's not how we're going to fly here. I appreciate that. You know, along those lines, what are the things that you would want white people to know when it comes to people being biracial or mixed race? And what are the things that you want Asian people to know when it comes to being biracial or mixed race? Oh, gosh. Just a a light one. Let me toss that out. (laughs) A light one. Please don't ask me, what are you? That is not the first thing to ask me. That is not at all the first thing to ask me is, what are you? I get that from both. We call them mono ratios. Like that is, we get that from both sides. I love that. The mono ratios. <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm using that. My husband is now going to be called a mono racial. I love this. I have used that term in our household. And it has, because I, I was like, well, how do you feel being the only monoracial person? And it did not go over so well. But I'm still, so because it didn't go over so well, I'm going to use it every day. <laughs> so yes, new vocabulary. Love it. Thank you. Yes, like I said, we are creating vocabulary here. I would love for them not to be lead with what are you? Like, it's so icky. And it's almost a very privileged thing of them to assume that I would owe them to tell them what I am. First of all, like, I tend to flip it on them as well. What are you? What are you? Oh, I'm white. Okay, what what type of white? Where was your family from? And I just and they just look so confused. I think it's fun to do that. But yeah, I think that'd be the first thing. Please don't lead with that. I am a human first. You know, you can ask me like what part of New York City I'm in. I mean, where do you come from is also very loaded, but everyone in New York City tends to come from other places. So it's very rare that you meet an actual New Yorker, I feel. So I don't usually get too offended when that is asked. It's also how you, your intentions and how you ask it, I think. It's so ironic though, because if another mixed Asian or a mixed person asks me, what are you? I'm, I'm usually like, oh my God, let me tell you what I am. Versus, you know, a monoracial, I'm just like, Why? There is an unspoken community. And that's something that I think 
I don't know if you feel this way, but based on the number of mixed Asian friends you have, I mean, it's something Misasha and I, we met in a HAPA group 26 years ago. So go figure that here we are discussing race like decades later on a podcast, but there's something that you don't have to explain about yourself or how you're wired or your family history when you feel that you have this connection. And it is a privilege that I think a lot of white people or a lot of monoracial people feel if they're with their community. We don't have that many people. And so there's this inherent like, I see you, you see me, like we're accepted instantly in these environments. And and I do feel very lucky to have these conversations in this kind of community. Absolutely. We have a, I'm not doing the TikToks, but my friend Kylan, she's head of our TikTok channel. And she's made some really fun memes around that of like the other mixed Asian spotting the other mixed Asian across the room and then like dancing and let's go get boba. And I'm like, yep, that's accurate. That checks out 100%. <laughs> oh, wait, but let's go back to the Asians, though. What are the, like, the, in terms of Asian people creating spaces, too? Like, what do they need to know? I would say be really, the chances are that your kids, that your grandkids, that your nieces and nephews are going to be mixed are very high. So I've had a lot of Asian folks come to me being like, oh, my God, my nieces and nephews are mixed. I, the things you're talking about, I never even thought of. And so I think it's just for them to do their research to really be mindful of what all that entails and be reassuring to either their children, their grandchildren, their nieces and nephews or whatever, that they are enough of their identities and that they don't have to choose, that they can just be. And that's enough, that nothing has to be forced on them, that ultimately they get to decide their identity and it can change. I always refer people to the Mixed Bill of Rights by Dr. Maria P.P. Root. I just think it's so eloquent and so perfectly said that I am enough Yeah, look it up. It is brilliant. And I really just refer everyone to that. And I think, you know, there's more and more stories out there. There's more writers out there that have the mixed narrative in mind and just really exposing your kids to that is really vital. And I I definitely have found Asian groups are definitely more accepting of us mixed Asian kids versus white spaces. I tend to have to constantly like explain while I'm here. I mean, like what you're, you're, you might have an Asian kid, but they just, kind of look at you like you're crazy. But meanwhile, Asian people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, we de- my niece or my nephew is Asian. I get it. Mixed Asian. I get it. So it, there tends to be a little more welcoming. Sometimes, though, it is until they realize that my last name's j- half Japanese that they're like, oh, you're Asian. I didn't know you were Asian. And I'm like, really? What did you think I was? I mean, so funny. This place I used to go get my nails done at, I specifically chose a Japanese salon because I just liked, I like them. I like everything. And and I they totally, the way they treated me, was so different once they found out that I'm part Japanese. It was like wild. Oh yeah. Sarah and I are both just like full nodding our heads there too. I did I tell you I found out there's a Japanese hairdresser up in Boulder in Colorado and I'm totally planning. She does like the Japanese hair treatment, like the 45 minute massage. I mean I'm always told by, by the white hairdressers, you have such thick hair. You have such yes, welcome to my Japanese heritage of like super <laughs> thick lots of hair. And so I'm super excited to check it out. And I'm very curious if she'll pinpoint me as biracial, like as in the in-group or in the out-group, because that's like a subculture of Asian-ness that's like, are you in or are you out? That I think plays into these conversations too. That'll be interesting. Yeah. I go to a, a Japanese hair salon too. She's been great. She's also like, we have the same texture hair. I know what to do with you. That is true. Like, I feel like when I was living in Japan and then in New York, I would go to a Japanese hairstylist as well, that that was when they were like, oh, we totally understand your hair. 
And so it's like, oh, thank you. It's like the best my hair ever looked was back then, right? And now I'm like, oh, now I know why. Like, I can't wait. Anyway, sorry. I'll report back after. We're going to have to do a whole other episode on just like beauty care. Yes, hair. Yes. So you've mentioned this a couple of times, but I am super excited to talk to you about your upcoming trip to Japan because you know, being the first in three generations of Iwatas to go back is huge. And I just came back from Japan with my family. And I, there is always such mixed emotions that I have about going to Japan and and being in Japan, because first of all, that advice you got about not speaking Japanese, absolutely right. Because even if you speak Japanese, people will speak to you in English anyway. And so like it became the my whole family was like, why aren't you speaking to people in Japanese? I was like, because this is a constant battle. Like I speak Japanese, they speak English. I speak Japanese, they speak English. It's very strange. But there are so many great things about going to Japan and sort of seeing that culture and being in the culture. And we do have all my dad's family there. So I do go knock on people's doorsteps and we do see them. And it is a big sort of like homecoming in a way, right? To go back, especially because this time we went back with my dad. But I want to hear like, what are you thinking about your upcoming trip? Like, what are your hopes? Like, what are your fears? And what do you have planned? Oh, gosh. So fortunately, I didn't plan this trip at all, which I love. My best friend's mom planned it. I should show you this. No, I'm just going to bring it up. I No one can see it except for you all. But this itinerary is crazy. And I'm just so thankful that because I'm so busy that Nora planned it. Like you can just see it is. She planned it to a T. Bless her. Oh, that's amazing. This is a Suzuki level itinerary, which is like saying a lot because my dad is on it too. That is amazing. Yeah. So I really appreciate that everything is planned. She did ask if I wanted to go where my family is from, but it was so out of the way. It's more towards Okinawa. So I didn't, and we're not staying in that area. And I was like, that's just going to derail the whole trip. So next year, the plan is possibly to go back with one of my cousins who also hasn't been and visit where our family's from and hopefully go to Okinawa as well. As far as like, I'm really excited, but I do feel very much like a tourist going. Like, I don't really feel like there's any homecoming because I don't have family there. And I don't, I feel very fortunate. I don't feel the need to prove my Japanese-ness, if that makes sense. And maybe that is because I'm third generation and mixed, but I don't expect to go there and people being like, oh my God, you belong. You're one of us. I do not expect that at all. Maybe people be like, Hafu, maybe they will. And I'll be like, yeah, you're right. I'll be even surprised at that because I think they're going to be like, oh my God, look at this purple haired, loud woman. She is American. Just roll into Shibuya. You'll be fine. Or like, or no, Shinjuku. And like, or yeah, you've got their fine. places. You can be, yeah. <laughs> and like, just wear the goth outfit. You'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'm really excited. I'm so excited about Harajuku Street. Like, I'm so excited for this fashion. My friends have been like, you're going to fit in. Like, you're not going to be the most outlandish person there. I'm like, I know. I can't wait. So I'm, I'm really excited just to like see as silly it is like the street fashion. I'm excited to eat. I'm so excited to eat everything. I've been told I will be ruined for life now for Japanese food. And I believe it because every time I travel out of the country, I'm so disappointed when I come back here. I'm so disappointed. It's like reverse culture shock, right? Like we live here. Why? (laughs) My husband and I have said that many times. We're just like, why are we here? Why are we living here with this food? So I'm really excited. I don't, it's interesting because when we do, my husband's also mixed Asian and we do travel together. People tend to assume that we are that country's culture. Like we're part of that. Like when we were in Greece, people assumed we were Greek. 
which was kind of fun, except when they handed us menus in Greek and we were like, we don't read this at all. So, but I don't expect that to happen in Japan. I expect them to be like, no, you are definitely a tourist and, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. I'm at peace with that because I did not expect it all to like have this long lost I'm home sort of feeling. I love the interesting conversations you can have and the different levels of understanding we can all have with our partners based on like, I married a white Canadian guy, but he spent lots of years living in Asia. And so I feel like he understands enough about Asia that I, and culture uh, and my culture that I can be myself and be seen. Totally. So I think that matters a lot. Yeah. And he and I had very different upbringings. He's from Cupertino and there was a huge mixed Asian population where he grew up. So he was very much like, oh, yeah, I I just fit in versus me where I was like, I didn't fit in. So we had two very opposite upbringings. So it's very interesting, his perspective versus my perspective. That's cool. That's really cool. Total random side note. As you said that about visiting Japan, my mom is there right now. And she just sent, I'm going to show you guys. My uncle was on NHK, like the national like station showing Oops, the house that we were raised like that, that was the house my mom was born and raised in. And it used to have tatami floors. That was like our shrine and like the doors. And I mean, it was just, oh, that's incredible. It's such a different sense of like, again, belonging and, oh, wow, that is me versus, I don't know, where do our souls and hearts belong? Cause I found my white family for the first time in decades and we all started getting together and I'm like, oh, I have white family. Like this is interesting. And so, I don't know. I'm so glad that we're having this conversation is my point because Every time we speak about biracial culture, about being mixed race, the number of emails and audience reach outs that we get just goes through the roof. Like people love this conversation. We're not having it enough. I'm so glad we can highlight your resource for everyone to feel like they belong. And so thank you very much for spending this time with us. Oh my gosh, my absolute pleasure. I'm so honored to be on this podcast. Like my team's all fangirling you guys. So like we're all excited. Is there anything that we didn't ask that you want to talk about? I guess something else that might be interesting to you all is we are trying to incorporate the Asian and adoptee experience into mixed Asian media, just because there's so much intersection there between our two groups. We have a podcast coming out with Patrick Armstrong, who's an incredible leader within the adoptee space. So I'm really excited for that podcast that we're going to be doing. And I just think that more coming together as groups is so important. And I think we can really uplift and help each other in in these spaces. I love that. We're big fans of Patrick over here too. So yeah, he's the best. And his voice is like butter. His voice is like total radio host voice. It's amazing. Where can people find you if they want to find out more about mixed Asian media, more about you, anything else that you're doing? You can find me on Instagram at Alex F. Chester, and you can follow Mixed Asia Media at Mixed Asia Media on Instagram and TikTok, all the things. You can check out our website, mixedasianmedia.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on all the things. We're pretty findable, which is good. And I'm pretty, if you want to shoot me a message, I try to respond. I might get lost in the Instagram, but people can always email me at alex at mixedasianmedia.com. And I try to respond as best as I can. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list.